Hello, everyone, and welcome to Music for a While. I'm Jay Nordlinger, music critic of the New Criterion. Want to begin with Mozart? A very good way to start. Can't go wrong with that, kid. I reviewed a live stream from Wigmore Hall in London. The Wigmore Hall, many Britons say. On the stage was Elizabeth Leonskaya. Let me read from my piece, please, my post. The post will be in the present tense because, at the time of publication, the live stream was still available for viewing. She is a pianist born in the Soviet Union in 1945. She left for Austria in 1978 and has lived in that country ever since. In 2006, the Austrian state awarded her its Cross of Honor, First Class. Leonskaya enjoyed a close musical relationship with Sviatoslav Richter, the great Russian pianist who lived throughout most of the 20th century. In 1964, Leonskaya won the George Inescu Piano Competition in Bucharest. I'll skip ahead a bit. The Wigmore Hall program consists of two sonatas, one by Mozart, the other by Beethoven. The Mozart is the much-loved, well-worn piano sonata number 10 in C major, K330. I think of a saying usually attributed to Arthur Schnabel. Mozart is too easy for children, too hard for adults. It is not too hard for Elizabeth Leonskaya. It is not too easy either. It is, manifestly, just right. Her Mozart is mature, elegant and wise but it is not without playfulness and, quote, youth. Her playing is fresh and lovely, evincing an appropriate spirit. It is, in short, Mozartian. The first movement is like a cool stream on a hot day. In the second movement, Andante Cantabile, Leonskaya discovers a lot of music. What I mean is, there is more music, even more drama, in this little movement than I previously suspected. The third and final movement is gay and stylish. Such a civilized woman, this pianist. Yes. Well, let's listen to the third movement, Allegretto. And let's listen to all of it, the whole movement. The music may seem very, very simple, child's play indeed, but it is imbued with the genius of the composer. We will hear Elizabeth Leonskaya in a recent commercial recording. Here we go.
That was the last movement, Allegretto, from the Sonata No. 10 in C Major, K330, by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Our pianist was the estimable Elizabeth Leonskaya. Well, to say it again, my estimable friends, I'm Jay Nordlinger, music critic of the New Criterion, bringing you music for a while. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, you may do so via iTunes, Google Play, and so on. If you'd like to write to me, the address is nordlinger at newcriterion.com. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please let us know. Usually, if you have the national anthem, you begin with that. And I began with Mozart. In any event, I received a note from a friend, a musician friend, Professor, he said, an interesting story I'd never heard previously. I love our national anthem, but I know that's becoming an unpopular opinion. Did I ever tell you I attended Stravinsky's funeral at Frank E. Campbell in 1971? Stokowski sat directly at my right hand more than 50 years ago. Frank E. Campbell is a funeral chapel in New York. Leopold Stokowski was one of the great conductors of the 20th century. My friend linked to a page, an article, unbylined, saying this. In 1939, Igor Stravinsky immigrated to the United States, first arriving in New York City before settling in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he delivered the Charles Eliot Norton Lectures at Harvard during the 1939-40 academic year. While living in Boston, the composer conducted the Boston Symphony, and on one famous occasion, he decided to conduct his own arrangement of the Star-Spangled Banner, which he made out of a, quote, desire to do my bit in these grievous times toward fostering and preserving the spirit of patriotism in this country. The time, specifically, was January 1944. As you might expect, Stravinsky's version of the Star-Spangled Banner wasn't entirely conventional, and the Boston police, not exactly an organization with avant-garde sensibilities, issued Stravinsky a warning, claiming there was a law against tampering with the national anthem. They were misreading the statute. Grudgingly, Stravinsky pulled it from the bill. Jiminy Christmas, I'd never heard any of that. Well, here it is.
that was, of course, the Star-Spangled Banner in an arrangement by Stravinsky. The orchestra was a London one, the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by an American from California, Michael Tilson Thomas. I'm put in mind of Shostakovich's Tea for Two. I've written about this little number, this little arrangement, in the past. On Google, I have found a post from 2012. A genius wins a bet. I wrote that Shostakovich called his version of Tea for Two the Tahiti Trot. Do you know the story behind this, I asked? Here's the lore, and I think it's pretty accurate. The year is 1927. Shostakovich hears Tea for Two once. The conductor Nikolai Malko challenges him to orchestrate it. He bets Shostakovich he can't do it in under an hour. The young whiz sits down and does it in 40 minutes. Shostakovich was 22 at the time, I believe, 21 or 22. Shostakovich loved music of virtually every type. He once quipped, I love all music from Bach to Offenbach. Years ago, I wrote about Malko in The New Criterion. I then heard from his son, who lives or lived in New York. He had written a play about his parents and their tumultuous journey. People in the Soviet Union tended to have tumultuous lives. I went to see it. Such an interesting world now and then. More lore? Okay. T for Two was written by Vincent Humans for the musical No No Nanette. It said that the owner of the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees in order to finance No No Nanette. Probably not true, but fun. And an amazing fact about Shostakovich. He lived a horrific life, preyed on and terrorized by the Soviet state at nearly every turn. But he made room for fun wherever and whenever he could.
we have heard the Tahiti Trot, which is to say, Shostakovich's arrangement of Tea for Two, that immortal hit by Vincent Humans. Amazing, huh? The orchestra was a concert cabal conducted by Ricardo Chailly. Let me read from another post of mine, a recent one, Birth of a Theme. This is pretty offbeat, as offbeat as the Tahiti Trot. How does the sausage of music get made? An obit in the New York Times by Neil Genslinger gives us a glimpse. By the way, the obituarist and I could start a company called Genslinger and Nordlinger. I put my name second, not out of modesty, but because the company name as a whole sounds better that way, Genslinger and Nordlinger. The obit begins, Monty Norman, who in the early 1960s reached into his back catalog, pulled out a song about a sneeze, and transformed it into one of the most recognizable bits of music and movie history, the James Bond theme, died on Monday in Slough, England, near London. He was 94. Song about a sneeze? More on that in due course. The composer was born Monty Nozorovich in London. His father, Abraham, made cabinets, and his mother, Anne, née Berlin, sewed dresses. In the early 1960s, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Bercoli were about to launch their James Bond movies. The first was to be Dr. No. They asked Monty Norman whether he would like to write the score. He was not particularly keen on the idea, until Mr. Saltzman threw in an incentive, as Neil Genslinger writes. That incentive was a free trip to Jamaica, where the movie was being shot, for him and his family. That was the clincher for me, Norman would relate. Whether the movie was a flop or a hit, at least we'd have a sun, sea, and sand holiday. But what would he do about a theme? The obit tells the tale. He was struggling to come up with the theme, he said, until he remembered a song called Bad Sign, Good Sign from an unproduced musical version of the 1961 V.S. Naipaul novel A House for Mr. Biswas, on which he and a frequent collaborator, Julian Moore, had worked. I went to my bottom drawer, found this number that I'd always liked, and played it to myself, Mr. Norman said. The original, which opened with the line, I was born with this unlucky sneeze, had an Asian inflection and relied heavily on a sitar. Man alive. Norman said that he discerned in this music, this corny, frankly, orientalist music, a novelty song, the sexiness, mystery, and ruthlessness of James Bond. It's all there in a few notes, he said. Okay, an addendum from me. The Biswas musical was never produced, as the obit of Monty Norman tells us. But I would like to tell you this. A House for Mr. Biswas stands as one of the greatest reading experiences of my entire life. I got to know the author, Vidya Naipaul, a little through his dear friends, David and Clarissa Price-Jones. Lady Naipaul, Natara, is a dear friend of mine, as are David and Clarissa. The last words I ever spoke to Naipaul were, I hope you don't mind my saying it again. A House for Mr. Biswas was one of the greatest reading experiences of my whole life. He seemed pleased 
and I am pleased. Okay, let's hear Monty Norman's song, Bad Sign, Good Sign, the one he wrote for the Biswas musical. Unlucky sneeze And what is worse I came into the world The wrong way round Pundits all agree That I'm the reason Why my father fell Into the village pond And drowned I was born Under a bad sign Love Trinidad said it was a bad sign Hindus and Chinese, Africans and Portuguese Everybody worry about my sneeze Achoo! Pundit said I had unlucky teeth With little gaps between That mean a boy is bound to lie And they said that I was born beneath the star of lechery And had a very evil eye Nothing but bloody superstition signs I write find their business booming overnight that's right all the signs are pointing in the right direction for a prosperous and happy life to come since I met this lovely girl who got me feeling dizzy like I drank a double pint of rum that? Achoo! That was Bad Sign, Good Sign by Monty Norman, which he transformed into this.
Well, the making of sausage, musical sausage. The James Bond theme by Monty Norman, stemming from the abortive Biswas effort, sitar and all. Let's go out with a popular song. In a recent article about politics, I used the expression, little things mean a lot. You know that song, right? The music is by Carl Stutz, the lyrics by Edith Lindemann. It was a hit of 1954. Its most popular recording was that of Kitty Collin, born in Philadelphia to immigrant parents whose original name was Kalinsky. Thank you for joining me, my friends, and all the best to you. Blow me a kiss from across the room Say I look nice when I'm not Touch my hair as you pass my chair Little things mean a lot Give me your arm as we cross the street Call me at six on the dot A line a day when you're far away Little things mean a lot Don't have to buy me diamonds and pearls Champagne, sables, or such I never cared much for diamonds and pearls Cause honestly, honey, they just cost money Give me a shoulder to cry on Whether the day is bright or gray Give me your heart to rely on Send me the warmth of a secret smile To show me you haven't forgot For always and ever now and forever, little things mean a lot. Give me your heart when I've lost the way. Give me your shoulder to cry on. Whether the day is bright or gray, give me your heart. To rely on Send me the warmth Of a secret smile To show me you haven't Forgot That always and ever Now and forever Little things Mean